Hey, everyone. Welcome. I have with me today for some interesting conversation, Roger Thisdell. Um, Roger is someone that whose work I, I encountered actually in the, uh, there's a Qualia Computing Network Facebook group that um, I'm a part of, I guess we're both a part of. And um, I discovered, uh, I'm not sure if you posted it or someone else posted it, but it was a, a, a video showing jhana meditation in real time with some explanatory phenomenological um, descriptions. Um, and as someone who I'm interested in jhana meditation and, and, and thought, wow, this is really cool. I'd love to uh, talk about this and also talk about exactly what that means, because it might, you know, what that word means can vary a little bit in different uh, practices mm. and traditions. So, um, but uh, anyway, when I looked in a little bit more, you've got a YouTube channel, meditative.dev. Um, and you're starting a, about to start a master's uh, degree at the University of Edinburgh in epistemology, ethics, and mind uh, with cognitive science. Yes. Um, you are uh, yeah. also now um, a member of the EPRC, the Emergent Phenomenology Research, Research Consortium. Um, and I guess one of the, so there's, there's clearly a lot of theoretical background that you can bring to the, 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 the meditative uh, phenomenology as well, which is what I'm really interested in. Um, but the, one of the main reasons why you're, what you were doing stood out to me a little bit is because um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is focused on metamodern spirituality and uh, integral uh, theory and things like that, where, um, where the development of state um capacities and 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 skillful development of state skills uh is a topic that relates also to um the change of like long-term traits um which is this er area that i'm becoming more interested in is how is how state training can can become uh kind of permanent or long-lasting um realities physiologically and and mentally um and so one of the things that just came out briefly in one of the videos that you did but i thought was really interesting was um you talk about uh having now kind of um well i'll let you describe it i'll read your i'll read this little bio and maybe that'll kind of set it up and then we can talk about it a little bit um but here's right. your here's your bio over at the eprc uh from a young age, Roger had a very low hedonic set point, but over the years, through introspective and meditative practices, he has managed to tremendously increase his baseline well-being to a level much above the norm. He now has a mind which represents itself as permanently centerless and without the sense of a singly positioned epistemic agent. He aims to help others achieve similar levels of baseline well-being and mental unperturbability by by providing guidance with his online meditation group at meditative.dev. And then there's a little bit more there. But um, yeah, you were talking about um, from your experience doing jhana meditation, uh, reaching a point in that practice where basically certain of those states had essentially become permanent traits. And so I wanted to mm. maybe explore some of that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's by way of a, of a really long introduction. Um, but uh, but cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for introducing me and thank you for inviting me here. I'm yeah, really yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to this. <laughs> so so let's dive in a little bit. So contextually, um, 
Speak a little bit about the kind of jhana meditation that you're talking about. I have a conception of it, but I want to know if we're kind of thinking of the same things or um, if you're what kind of tradition that is. And, 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 and I guess maybe one way you could do that is, is go through the different jhanas and, and what that looks like and maybe talk about some of that lineage. Sure, 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 sure. So the, how to describe the jhanas. I mean, there are a, you know, traditionally there's eight jhanas and there are a series of like eight deeply concentrated, absorbed, altered states you can get into. Um, each one has a different meditation object that you focus on, or nimitta that you focus on, that you, you, you build and build to the point where you've, that in, ultimately should you know, encompass the totality of your experience or, or the big, a big bulk of your experience. Um, the first one is... PT or sort of very pleasant body sensations. The second jhana is uh, focusing on sukha, which is um, sort of emotional joy, happiness. Third one is contentment. Fourth one, equanimity. Fifth one, and then, then after four, you kind of move to a space that sort of uh, the, the, the feeling of the physical body really drops off. And the fifth one is boundless space sometimes they say infinite space but i, I actually think boundless uh, space is a better uh, framing of it and sixth one boundless consciousness then seventh one nothingness eighth one uh, neither perception nor non-perception and then um like in the video uh, this sort of sometimes what's called a ninth the ninth genre is like cessation where uh consciousness uh, turns off for a, a blip um so, you know, my inspiration for doing the jhanas is, you know, like Lee Brasington's work, his book, Right Concentration, um, following sort of Rob Babea has some great um, sort of lecture series on the jhanas where he just sort of describes what they're like. Um, and there's a lot of debate, I guess, about, you know, the definitions of the jhanas what what constitutes a jhana the criteria for getting into them right so i i got into this material through lee bracington's work that that book you mentioned right concentration which for me was a real game changer it's called a practical guide to the jhanas and and he does a just a great job of presenting the material rooted in um you know, he's going back to the, 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 the sutta material in which these states are described in various ways and sort of basing his practice uh, or, or, yeah, uh, on those descriptions there. Um, but, but not just theoretically, but like really giving, you know, really great concrete uh, teaching skills for being able to, to cultivate these states. And when I discovered that it was, it was really good. So I, I began, you know, exploring that method and it, seemed to be it seemed to hold up so to speak um so i had that kind of you know (laughs) experimental and experiential reality to it which was like this is really cool but one of the things that bracington talks about in the book is that the jhanas have been there's there's there are these jhana debates about well what are these things that people have been referring to as the jhanas um and he kind of he does, I think, a pretty good job. And I, again, I'm, I'm, most of my familiarity comes from him. So maybe there's more that you could fill in about this or, or other resources you could direct me to. But the picture that I get from him is that, you know, um, that originally these states are kind of described in the suttas, but then they become m- almost unattainably kind of 
represented once you start moving into the more like scholastic era of Buddhism and the Abhidhamma and, and the, the path of purification and things like that, where um, trying to cultivate the jhanas as described there would seem almost impossible. And so um, basically the notion is that, well, at some point, the, what the understanding was of the jhanas has shifted and maybe these meditative states are completely real and exist and whatnot, but maybe they weren't originally what was being described in the, in the um, pseudo material. And so anyway, yes, these debates about what these states are um, is, is, a, is, is still a live debate, I guess. Um, and so that's why when I, when I hear people saying that they practice jhana meditation, I'm sort of like, well, what, you know, what, what does that mean? And what, and yeah, so it sounds like we're very much talking about the same thing um, mm -hmm. in the same sort of states, um, which is, which is cool. Um, so yeah, so then uh, I, I, I posted this, this video um, where you're, you, you and your uh, kind of colleague or friend at your channel, you're both doing mm -hmm. a, a meditative practice. Sean, yeah. Sean, yeah. Um, and, and, and you're sort of going through the meditative states, these different jhanas, and you're describing them. And some people see that and they're like, well, wait a second, how can you be in this state and then describe it? It would seem to be, you know, that doesn't make sense. So could you explain that mm -hmm. a little bit and how, how you're able to kind of walk through these different jhanas and then also you know give some descriptions yeah of them. yeah well, well, well first first of all actually in the video i'm not doing the jhanas just just sean is and there's right. an interesting reason for that right um, which we'll but, get to <laughs> well, which we get into but it's it's bec because i guess there's you know something we could talk about like light jhanas where you're able to you've got the meditation object in mind, you know, you're really focusing in, you can be building the, the sukha, say, and yet some, I mean, it's not crazy that you can have that as your main, what, what is in attention, what is really being highlighted as the most salient object in your experience at that moment, and still in the background sort of vaguely kind of say, oh, this is happening, or, you know, Sean maybe even kind of dipping out or fading out of the jhana to describe a little bit and then kind of home back in on it and mm -hmm. when you when you're good at meditating you do have this malleability to to move your attention to to kind of duck out and then slightly you know go back in and, and sort of home your attention back on the point and right um i mean i think also one way to give a you know give give credit to sean and and you know, I, when I claim my attempts to the jhanas, like if you have a clear moment, a clear recognition that of like you're really with the object so much so that it really was it felt like it was encompassing your entire experience because you're just so on it. You're, so, you're such a clear, precise uh, vision of this um, meditation object. It becomes undoubtable that even if it was just for like you know, a second or so that happened, that real, that was my mm -hmm. experience. That mm -hmm. was really real. That was the most important thing happening in the room at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, so I know that, that makes sense. Yeah. Bracington does, has done um, some brain scan studies and I guess fMRI studies while he's doing these states and whatnot. And he will basically have to indicate to the researchers like okay now i'm about to go into jhana one or jhana two or whatever but you know he'll kind of have to pop out of it for a second and then say 
you know, wait 30 seconds or so before you look at what those scans are. Cause I'll have to kind of right. get his way back into it. Um, which actually, before we get into some of this other material, more biographical, I'm, I'm interested. I I'm, I'm, it's supposed to come today. Actually, I just ordered a muse S. Um, and so basically it's a personal EEG machine that you can wear and you can track your oh, brainwaves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. I'm curious if you've one, if you've ever, um, used one of those or done any of that? No, no, I'd love to. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really intrigued by this. um, And I'm really intrigued by, it'd be fascinating. One of the things I want to experiment with is like, can we find distinct, you know, EEG patterns for the distinct jhanas? Um, I've I've been looking online. I've, I mean, I've only been able to find one sort of uh, study around that, um, or I wouldn't maybe studies uh, it's not quite like a peer-reviewed research thing, but someone has some 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 materials on that. Um, but it was interesting because you don't really see too much of the stage progression of jhanas per se. But one thing, and I'll post this or I'll show it in the video or something. One thing that you do see very clearly is this cessation that comes at the end, where literally you can watch all the del- all the brain waves just come to a close, and mm-hmm. and and that seems to to like show what you are talking about with these cessation states um which again very interesting interesting stuff um so anyway more to come on that i'm i'm really intrigued by that material but to to get to get into your experience so as you as that little bio i read kind of intimates your experience is one where um there's what a a decentering um explain explain what you mean or explain maybe what 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 the progression has been in terms of, um, I don't know, your, your, your change of states and now maybe uh, a transition to a new permanent state or a new trait or, or how, that, yeah. how that happened and what that really means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, because I would say, you know, along the path, there were a series of moments in which sort of, I mean, one, the, the sort of remodeling of the sort of structure of the mind changed and and i'm talking about a change that becomes the new default now and not something i have to pull some kind of meditative trick or mo- attentional move to induce or something like that um and um yeah i, I mean I, you know i can kind of i guess kind of walk through some of the big steps or kind of go straight to this last one but um why why don't you first describe a little bit what that last one is and then and then kind of explain how that progressed sure sure so this this last shift and you know i I really try to come up like with my own words so like in that bio you said like okay there's no singly positioned epistemic agent like i these are the kind of words that i try to use to avoid you know, if, if I use jargon like, okay, you know, fourth path, our handship, these kind of things. And then, yeah, I mean, even with the genres, there's so much debate there. It's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? No way. So if I just more clearly just explain, okay, this is what it's like to be me, call it whatever you want. Um, so, 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 yeah, the most noticeable shift is before they used to feel like there was some epistemic agent in the head some some cluster of of sensations but actually when i peered my attention into it i could see that it was really empty and i could i could even see that this sort of sensation would appear and disappear appear and disappear but it still felt like knowledge was being attributed to some subject point here 
And so that whenever anything arose in the experience space, the information still had to travel back to this epistemic agent for it to be known. It's like, even though something's happening here, it's known here. The difference now is the, the mind is no longer even generating this epistemic agent, this point here. That I, I don't even feel like a, a cluster of sensations back here or feeling some kind of reference point. And so things appear where they do in the experience space. And there's a sense that they're just known there. So, you know, something that's like really cool, I find is like when I'm listening to music is I can place a speaker in the corner of the room and the sound is being emitted from the speaker. And maybe, you know, the body is in the other corner of the room. But the knowing of the sound and the music is all at the source point of the speaker. And it's like, it's like the body has nothing to do with knowing the music, if you follow me. Sure. <laughs> so, <that> yeah, <laughs> it, well, it, it, it sounds fascinating. It sounds, um, it, I think because it sounds so alien to uh, kind of, uh, if there's a, if saying something like a standard, normal human phenomenological right. experience, whatever that is, uh, it's so different from that, that it's hard to conceptualize and think about. Yes. I mean, so, so explain a little bit, like I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you, you are having, you're seeing things, you're having emotions, you're smiling, you're talking, you're doing things. But so how does that relate to then that decentered epistemic agent? I mean, uh, you know, are you just aware of those sensations, but it yeah. doesn't feel like there's a, yeah. a kind of singular uh, ego kind of that unites all those into some entity or something? Yeah, there, well, there's something, there's interesting phenomenology to get into with the sense of self as well. And I think there was a, there's an, another, you know, I, I felt like, okay, before this, this centerlessness, um, I was very in touch with no self. You know, I really had this sort of sense that um, whatever I pointed my attention to, despite, despite the sense that they felt like there was a, a center to experience and a, the nowhere here, I still wouldn't have said, I, oh, I am the knower or um, um, whatever I point my attention to. It was clear to me, okay, that's not me, not self. And there was a, a sub subjective feeling of not self. Like that just, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like me. That doesn't feel like me. Whatever I point my attention to, my thoughts, they don't feel like me. But again, it's interesting because that feeling of no self is another kind of um, experience, another kind of appearing you know, in experience. And now it's like, that's not even being generated. So I don't even have the feeling of no self and self. It's, it's, it's strange. I can't even sort of say like, I really sure. feel like now no it's, self. it's interesting though, because I can understand that even better because then there's a, a way of, of still having a centered self, even if you don't identify with it. But mm. When you say that, like you still experience the music, even if it's the other room, as though it's at the the kind of or origin point of the music itself, that's where I start to become really curious and intrigued, um, uh, because because it seems like okay, if the self is something that maybe is being generated in here, and it's some maybe in, at some fundamental point, let's say it's illusory in some way. Um, we are still seemingly bound by our um, by our senses and, and our ability to you know pick up information as it relates to this body, right? So like I can't know what my friend Jeremy in Ohio is experiencing or thinking right now because I'm not locationally you know temp uh, yeah. So so 
that's where I always start to get, I guess, a little bit even skeptical, not to say that I'm being skeptical of your experience. Yeah. I'm just, I'm most interested in oh, like, how is it possible? I encourage to you to be skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so ex- I don't know. Can you explain that either, yeah. either theoretically or phenomenologically what it's like to have a body? Well, and, yeah. I'll try to do both. So this, yeah. cause I think this is a interesting distinction, distinction that often doesn't get passed out when we're talking about the self. I think we can talk about it in two different ways, and often people don't realize if they're conflating these two ways, where you can talk about the, the felt sense of self phenomenologically in experience, what do I feel numerically identical to, one in the same as, or what do I identify with, which is a different way of talking about the self than if I'm talking about like in a more ontological way and in sort of theorizing. So, for example, some people you ask them, okay, what are you? And they might say, oh, I'm a brain. Experientially, you have no insight and inference into your brain, to, to a brain. You don't see a brain, smell a brain, any of these things. But they might really believe, okay, I am a, I am a brain. Um, and so, you know, you can, we, we can go down that path and talk about, okay, sort of, yeah, more metaphysically, ontologically, what are you? Um, and I, I might say, well, there's clearly some kind of hub of like, really strongly knitted together information processing sort of system here in which the exchange of information is located is bound and yeah information about what jeremy is doing in some other part of the country it just that information cannot travel to be known around this center um yeah so and but then you know just phenomenologically there's just one experience here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you can ask more probing sure. questions. So like when you talk about that music analogy, like even though it's in the other room, you have an experience of it as being kind of from the origin. Uh, yeah. Is that um, like, is that because at one point, like recently you just did experience it at the origin. And even though you are now away from it, you've still had that phenomenological reality that now you can now you can sort of almost extrapolate based on that whereas like if i were to play music here when you're not around you wouldn't be able to have access to that and so you wouldn't be able to experience that music from its origin like there needs to be some point of contact maybe i don't know yeah yeah so i mean the way i try to make sense of this is i I think i think this isn't a controversial opinion especially probably in the meta-modern scene that you you live within your own world simulation, right? Um, but the world simulation, your world simulation, does pertain to something that is, you know, an, an organism with organs, right? So clearly, this being has to be in earshot of the music to hear it. Um, in which case, you know, the, the sound waves do have to travel to the organs of hearing. Um, but experientially, within your world simulation, that's the physics are not the same. That the system, it's just the sound is just appearing in its place in the experience. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. that yes. make a bit yeah. more sense? Sure, yeah. sure. That that is helpful. Um, because where I, where I myself, and this is where I am now. I I think it's a good place to be, and so that's why I hold this position. But. I'm certainly other people think differently. Uh, but where I am with these things generally is as soon as someone starts making claims about information that they don't have access to, because what 
telepathy, you know, psychic energy, something like that. That's when I say, no, I, I don't believe that, you know, but that doesn't mean yeah. what, what you're saying isn't possible, that that whatever the information is that you you are immediately perceiving, that that can be radically reoriented or reframed or, you know, experienced in a radically different framework. Um, so, but I also, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe that isn't what you're saying or, or is it, is that, is it something more like that, that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got no contention with what okay. you just said. <laughs> so then, um, so, I mean, we could, I'd love to, you know, we could dive into all that phenomenology and maybe we can come back to it, but, but say a little bit more about how this came to be the case and, and, and what, if there's a relationship here with the jhanas specifically, or with a meditative practice specifically. Yeah. Yeah. They could very well be because um, this this shift took place while I was in the fourth jhana, actually. So maybe I can just tell the story. But I was on a, a two week jhana retreat in Portugal. Just um, you know, me and four other friends kind of set this up in the countryside. It's really nice. We're, we're doing this, and on the third day of the jhana retreat, the, the last sit of the day, I was. Um, yeah, I, I, well, so I, I was, you know, Lee Brasington's book was one of one of one of our, you know, instruction guides, and I remember in between, you know, lunchtime maybe I was sort of reading a chapter in the book, and he talks about, oh, insight practice, and he says, uh, you know, the fourth genre is a good place to do insight practice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a very sort of clean, sort of stable state, uh, not a lot of, you know, uh, crazy distractions or anything happening there. Um, and then he talked about dependent origination, just as an example. It's like, for example, you could do uh, contemplation on dependent origination. And I kind of read that, term, I was like, oh yeah, good idea, Lee. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then uh, later on in the day, yeah, so I, I did just that. And, you know, it's, what, it's one of these things, I, th I think for a while I felt like something was building. I felt like I was just around the corner. Like, close to something close. And then under the right conditions, under retreat, perhaps, you know, things came together and it, and it happened but so I'm, I'm sitting in the the fourth jhana and I so so just saying this will um maybe anger some people but I'll say I was hearing a bird outside but you know some people are like you shouldn't be hearing anything in the jhanas <laughs> but but I was hearing a a bird and there was a sense okay how do I know the bird how do I know the sound of this bird? And it's like, well, there's a sound appearing in consciousness, in experience. But there's still a sense that uh, the knower is here, at some point here. And for whatever reason, because you know, I've got high equanimity in the fourth jhana, really good uh, attentional uh, skills. You know, I, I did the classic move where you point attention back at itself, looking at that source point. And then yeah, for whatever reason, it, it was, it was uh, I, I think, seen through. And, and one way I describe it, I, I believe this sense that there is a, a knower in the middle of experience is actually a modal perception. One way I describe it, I could talk more about what I mean by that. But then but just to explain all the story. So that kind of disappeared. And then I realized, oh, no, hang on. The sound of the bird is just known where the sound of the bird is appearing in experience. And then there was this like kind of de-clustering and things syncing up and really cool and then there was a brief moment of like 
total existential fear like oh, you know there's no ground to stand on and then and then you know and everything and um yeah that was really cool and then life has never been the same again <laughs> fascinating and and so when you when you came out of the that meditation set then was there a sense that you did go back to some other state or was there a sense that uh you just persisted in that state or like was it was there a shift between the end of that sit and and say what you're experiencing now or fundamental continuity or something yes yeah so so immediately after there was when it happened i the body actually kind of went into shock like i i was like everyone else was still meditating but i was just kind of like for I don't know how long because what I was experiencing I'd never experienced before and I've I've experienced a lot of wacky altered states but this was something I'd never never had before and um yeah and then the meditation you know I was just what uh, meditation uh, ended and then we had like a little five minute break before we were gonna come back into the meditation hall but uh yeah the body was like kind of like a bit in shock actually like I couldn't um kind of stay still and uh it was it was cool though (laughs) but but then it's it's interesting you know and I'm still trying to pick out make sense of the difference here because in some way you want to say okay that at that point something uh kind of crystallized or has been sturdy and unchanging um and yet you know still being a human i still feel progress and development um maybe even faster now so to speak to that a little bit what is that when you say development because this is the context for a lot of this and i'm not sure if i set this up maybe i talked to you about it briefly but um for if i haven't talked about it yet you know in the actual thing here uh i'm really interested in I guess I said a little bit of this at the, at the outset, but I'm, I'm really interested in how these ideas of states can lead to um, permanent altered, you know, stages or, or traits or however you want to think about that, that it's more than just that a state, you know, I'm either, I have this high meditative state now, but then once the meditation ends, I come back down and, you know, it's like, that's it. That's a temporary thing. But I'm intrigued by this notion that if, if there are certain things that you do, they can lead you to a place where eventually it does kind of crystallize. And now you're sort of, you've got a new default, as you say. And so at the same time, as you also say, you're still, you're still around, you're still a human, you're still developing. So what is, when you talk about developing after this, uh, is, do, do, do you mean um, in, in further conscious state exploration, or do you just mean um, learning new things, thinking new thoughts, having new insights, or what, what does that mean, development? Yes, the, the latter, pretty much. So, so yeah, once the center dropped away on that third day, it hasn't come back like this. And um, do, you, do you miss it at all? Not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. No. Okay. no, I mean, I mean, this, I think this part, because people are obviously very interested in the phenomenology and the cool, like, okay, what's your perception like now? But, you know, the part that can't be understated enough is the sheer reduction in suffering and increase in baseline well-being. Like that, that's what you really want. That's what you, what we all really care for. And this is the, yeah, best thing as I've, I've ever experienced in my life. This is, so good so do you do you still i mean you're walking around you stub your toe ouch that hurts i mean 
that's got to, there's, there must be those experiences of suffering in some way. What is that like with, if there's a decentered uh, subject? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I'm still adverse to painful stimuli. Um, but it's crazy. You know, people make some claims like, oh, there's a 99% reduction in suffering. And before I would have been like, that's just hyperbolic, extreme, absurd. That's insane. Um, and now I, I get what they're talking about. Like, is so much of our suffering is psychological because there's, there's just an existential wrestle with life that is just not present anymore. So, yeah, I'm still adverse to um, uh, painful stimuli. But, uh, you know, luckily I, I live uh, in, a, in a first world country and, and sort of a place where I don't have to worry too much about those kind of threats. Um, what would you say about... Um, <laughs> Like, like there's a way, uh, all right. So I, I'm going to interpret a little bit what you're saying and also correct me if I'm wrong there, but there's almost, I would just presume that because your sensations are not like you in the old sense that even if they are adverse or negative or painful, that they're not then therefore experienced as suffering in the same way, because they're not attached to that. Like, it's not like I am suffering. It's that. I am experiencing this sensation, which is, you know, adverse or negative or something. Is that fair as an intro to this thought? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it could well be more complicated. Sure. Than oh, that, I, but, I, yeah, I simplicity, yes. Yeah. And so, but then my thought would be um, that there, there are also ways in which psychological pathologies can shape uh, thoughts in that in a similar manner of like dissociation, right? Like I experienced something, but it's almost too painful that I separated off. And so I'm able to deal with it. Um, but that's a pathological form of that experience. Whereas what you're talking about seems deeply salutary. Um, could you think, could you speak to that kind of a distinction at all? Maybe, maybe not, not so well, but I still functioning healthily in society. My relationships with my friends and loved ones are, you know, going very well. And, and I, I feel very confident of how appropriate I am to behave out in the world. And I'm not doing anything erratic or, um, yeah, totally antisocial or anything like that. Right. Yeah. I guess I just, I mean that like, it's interesting how I, uh, a similar framing of something can be both highly salutary, but but it, uh, that there are ways of something happening in a similar way that don't achieve the same level of integration or something like that, or I, something is different in which dissociation is different than what you're talking about, I guess would be yes. the, the, the yeah. presumption. Um, so, okay. So let, and well, I want to jump back, but if you have anything more that you want to add about the whole thing at this point, you know, feel free to elaborate or, uh, or I can. Um, yeah, I well, I think there's a there's like a cool kind of analogy I've been trying to build to sort of represent the difference in experience here with like a like a spider's web. Um, so a spider's web, the way it's set up is there is a center point and the spider will be hanging out at some point on the web. And when a fly flies into the web, um, in order for the spider to know that 
okay, a potential next meal has landed on his web, um, there has to be enough slack in the web so that the vibrations can ripple out and that information can reach the spider, aka the epistemic agent who's located at one spot on the web. And I think of like, okay, well, the amount of slack or the rippling of the web sort of represents volatility and sort of like stress in the system and it has to like kind of dissipate out. And um, when you, so that would be like the previous setup of mind. And so now the way I'd explain my mind is, okay, remove the center and remove the spider as one single epistemic point in which all information must ripple back towards this guy and attribute knowing to the web itself. And then you can have this kind of lattice sort of mm -hmm. straight tighter web set up. So the fly can land anywhere, you know, be any, any kind of sensation or stress point, but because the web can now afford to be tighter because the information is known in the point that it arises and it doesn't need to travel throughout the whole web to one single point, the spider of epistemic agent, then there's less volatility and rippling in the whole system. And so it, it sort of, you know, dissipates quicker and it's dealt with sort of more subtly and it doesn't disrupt the whole rest of the system. That's one yeah. uh, kind of illustration of that's coming up with. <laughs> Are there, um, since this experience, have you, have you found materials of any sort um, that now that you read them, you're like, oh, I think, I think I know, I think I have a good sense of what that's talking about or that certain things have become more like illumin illuminated to you since, because there are certain things, you know, like you can read texts and they'll talk about something, but it'll just seem purely conceptual in a way that isn't really, you know, whereas then if you have an experience, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's, that's what that's saying. I mean, have you had any, uh, you know, experiences like that with, with materials or literature or anything like that since this? Um, yeah, I think everyone goes through that, right? Um, the only thing I'm thinking of right now is like, I, rem I remember an interview where Shinzen Young was talking about one of his, his he, I guess he was kind of having some conflict with one of his teachers and his teacher said something like, um, like massage me with your anger. So I don't know, they were kind of had some beef or something like this, if I remember correctly. And it's like, massage me with your anger. What does that mean? And now I, I get that more. There's this, this some, something strange is happening experience where like, if I have an interaction with someone, I can sense hostility. Obviously I detect it and I feel it. And you can think, well, yeah, this is, you know, not pleasant. I'd rather not have this, but there's a, this, this is interesting kind of, ability um sort of discovering where I, even even though normally this would be totally sort of uh colored with negative valence i, I can see it's sort of undulations and there's something massage like about it um yeah you know and, yeah go well so i i'm curious to well and that what you're saying makes sense i suppose if rather than rather than being the spider if it's the whole web then there's this sort of i don't know trying to extrapolate based on what you said but um i'm i I'd be curious how, I mean, you're, you're about to start a master's program um, in epistemology and, and whatnot and cognitive science. So I'm really curious to know how your studies, how your experience has affected what you want to explore with your studies and uh, what your plans are with, with that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious too. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I start next week, uh, you know, officially. So um, I'm, I'm also in a process where I'm like really curious, like what, what's going to come of the future? Like what, what will Roger do? Uh, what is going to happen? But, um, you know, to talk about in the past, I, I think, cause I, yeah, I studied philosophy, my, my undergraduate and um, certainly I, you know, I guess a lot of people sort of will might shame, well, I don't know, but like, the theoretical work as being like, oh, this is just intellectual, you know, kind of circle jerking and stuff like this, but you need to really just sit on the, on the cushion and do the practice. And yes, that's true. But the theories that I've led, uh, I've read do inform my worldview understanding and how I might differently engage with the world and stuff like this. You know, I, I know like reading a lot of papers on like the free will debate, um, when I was younger, that sort of, you know, so I think at one point, like, you know, intellectual sort of very convinced, oh, there is no free will. And then, you know, then going home and sitting on the cushion and exploring my sense of free will, because I think for the most part, the free will debate just comes from people feel like they have free will. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what your position is, but, but then, you know, exploring that feeling of free will and, and then seeing through it. And then, you know, that was another thing that, just that feeling just stops getting represented in the mind at some point. Yeah. Well, if I, if we were to go into the free will direction, uh, <laughs> as, as Milton says in paradise lost, actually all the, in, in hell, all the demons go off and they start, you know, doing their thing. And, and some of them turn to philosophy and, uh, and then they start talking about free will and he says, and then they find themselves in wandering mazes lost. So like even fallen angels, debating about free will just never were able to get their heads around that one so uh, yeah, yeah. i feel like we'd be in wandering mazes well or not i mean maybe you'd, you maybe you'd have a lot to offer now uh to this whole conversation in a debate um based on some of this phenomenology but but let's just say bracketing that for a second i do want to go back a little bit and talk more about um sort of what led up to this and sort of what how uh, yeah what what however you want to answer that question, I guess, and wherever you want to start with that story of like, how did you, how did that come to be? What were some of the interests that, you, you know, you were studying philosophy and what brought you even to Bracington's work and John and meditation, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. It's a deep question, but it's a good question. So, you know, it's, it's strange, you know, I wonder as well, like why are certain people sort of, uh, why do certain people gravitate towards uh, meditation or contemplative practices? And, um, you know, you can have highly intellectual people, but they, they never reflect backwards in, in some way and sort of, you know, miss phenomenology as a, as a raw sort of first person subject. And, um, and I don't know, I, I, I was always in, had a philosophical kind of mindset as a kid, um, inquisitive about just the nature of reality. And so, I mean, a lot of my practice was recognizing that sort of epistemologically, we are on the consciousness side of things. And to experience something is, is to, to know something as intimately as you can know it. And so it's like, well, okay, yes, I'm, I'm really interested in you know, scientific theories that, that, that I think, I think do reveal a lot about the nature of reality as well. But, but 
what really what is this as close as I can know it and I have to look very closely at my experience so a lot of a lot of my practice was uh brought about by curiosity I was motivated through curiosity what is going on what is this what am I what am I mm -hmm. um yeah can I can I can you help me answer your question better no <laughs> that's a great that's a great um yeah, that, that kind of gets at sort of the impetus, the motivation. I mean, maybe even just oh, the jhanas, yeah. Yeah, and just sort of like um, you know, yeah. how was it that you found yourself to that material and Okay, okay. Yeah. So I I mean I had And and maybe uh, to clarify that too a little bit, because there's I it seems to me that there are many different forms of meditation out there. And so I'm always intrigued too by mm. like what lineages or what traditions or, or, you know, so, um, and in the past I've been looking for other people who were doing jhana meditation in the way that I, you know, studied it uh, from Bracington's book and hadn't really found a lot. So I thought, Oh, this must be kind of niche. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I'm intrigued by maybe, I guess there's two questions there. And one is sort of, you know, what, what was your particular story with finding that material specifically? And two, I mean, what would, <laughs> there's a much bigger question, so we don't have to tackle this, but like, what do you make of, of, of the pro proliferation or that's not even the right word, but just the multiplicity of so many different traditions and, and lineages and styles and, and what they have to offer in their own unique ways. Big question, maybe too big. Yeah. 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 Let me try with the first. So yeah, again, so I had some encounters with some some altered states that kind of blew open the doors of perception and made me realize, okay, the spectrum of possible conscious states is way wider than I ever could have conceived. And so I was really curious, okay, what do these different perspectives uh, offer and how, you know, how do they shape perception of uh, reality? And so I, you know, really wanted to explore a lot of these different states and, and, and I when I, you know, meditating along the path, mostly I was just trying loads of different meditation techniques that seem to offer, uh, get you to a, a desirable sort of state. And so I do the technique until I felt like, oh, okay, I got to the state that they were describing and sort of, you know, become really familiar with that state and comfortable, you know, be it like, um, you know, meta or loving kindness, or, you know, for example. And, um, and the jhanas are just another one of those as well. And, and the jhanas were actually kind of the last sort of states I wanted to explore sort of my, my list. And I, part of this is to really figure out, okay, is there a particular corner of consciousness, a state I can enter that really is super desirable, that it really is, okay, this is the place to hang out and this is the place to be. And what's interesting is, you know, you know, visiting all these sort of um, consciousness boutiques and seeing that ah, yeah, there's actually nothing kind of worth uh, really sort of just staying in this one state for. That, that, and, you know, they talk about the jhanas are super, super pleasurable states to be in. And I, you know, I won't, I won't disagree that there's something you know, very pleasant about them for sure, especially compared to other more mundane regular states of consciousness but it's like yeah there's still it's still none of it's going to totally fulfill your soul you know and that maybe i feel like that was why on this jhana retreat perhaps why the shift could have taken place because i remember you know even like on the third day sort of doing all the jhanas like oh this is cool 
but it's i don't know you know existence is still difficult life is still difficult and it's uh yeah you got to realize oh hang on stop stop looking to um pleasurable sensations and and, and sort of feelings to ultimately gratify you and yet you're saying that whatever this ultimate state was where it landed, that really is a mass improvement. It's, it is a, uh, I, f- I find that some of this language can become really hard to, uh, you know, fully understand because I, I think I get intuitively what you're saying, but it's interesting, right? It's like, yeah, well, we, you know, pleasurable states isn't necessarily the point there is. And yet when you get to like a deep equanimity or maybe when you get to a, a agentless center or decentered agent or whatever, however you want to put it, <laughs> there is something also, it's beneficial, right? It's better than what was, but maybe, yes. maybe the, the spectrum or the metric there isn't one of pleasure or pain, or it's not one of, um, yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I, I can part, I can parse that out. But I, you know, maybe perhaps another na- analogy where it's like, okay, imagine you've got a room and the room has its structure. It's got, you know, four walls and a ceiling of this high or whatever, and, you know, maybe a, a window and a door. But when you're, when you're moving between different sort of states, what that could be is you're just rearranging the furniture. But then the, the shifts, the more permanent shifts that have taken place, so I talk about it's a, a totally remodeling of the structure of, of my mind, it's not just about rearranging the furniture in the room where you're okay, you're adding a green sofa, which might represent PT or something like this. It's like, no, 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 you're like knocking down the walls and changing the whole shape of the found room. The, you so found the door out of the where, room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were just you just knock down all the walls, basically. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um Stru- now, structure versus sort of state. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um that is really interesting, actually, because that's that gets back to that stages versus state thing. Structures is 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 often a really good way of talking about structures of mind versus um, stages instead. But um, changing the very structure, I'm um, I'm interested too. You briefly mentioned in a in our brief correspondence that because um, I mentioned that I was interested in integral and integral theory and whatnot, and you mentioned that that had been an influence. Um, was any of I mean, yeah, just talk a little bit about the influence of integral uh, on you and 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 now that I don't know where you would assess its its place and everything now. Yeah, yeah. So if, I mean, for me, you know, I, I'm not super deep into this work, but enough so that you know, there's certain ideas being presented to you know being presented there that like when when you know when you when I learn about like spiral dynamics and, you know, integral theory kind of adopts spiral dynamics is that is a line of thinking that seems to unlock much more comprehension about the world. It seems like the world just makes more sense to me Mm. sort of, you know, having learned about this, this theory, whether it's true or not, but it's just, there's, there's less of a feeling of confusion. Why do people do what they do? And you sort of, Oh, okay, well, here's a potential Mm. explanation. Um, I really like, you know, um, these distinguishing between the different avenues of human development, you know, wake up, grow up, show up, clean up, or you know, there's a different order there. But so, you know, I feel like, oh, I, I've really woken up, but that's not to say that I've, um, I'm the most grown up or something like that. You know, I'm still quite young. And so I certainly wouldn't 
say that I'm like super wise and, and all these things. And so I still see, you know, areas to, to develop in there. Yeah. I've, I'm, I, that's something that I've, uh, appreciated about the framework is like, because otherwise there tends to be this conflation of, oh, this person has had some really profound state experiences, or maybe it's even become permanent. Therefore they are a moral exemplar and mm -hmm. know everything about all things or something. Right. And it's sort of like, no, maybe you need to differentiate that there are these different ways in which something can be highly developed and, um, certainly there's probably all sorts of interactions and, and, and correlations between those, but um, it helps to explain a little bit of that, that phenomenon of like, but how did this seemingly deeply enlightened person do this terrible thing? You know, why, why did that become a cult and why did this, you know, and uh, I, I found that a helpful, um, you know, framework to begin to elucidate that because um, yeah, there is this sort of sense that then someone can go around and basically pronounce their perspectives on something which might be influenced by or or highly you know oriented according to some high state achievement but that doesn't necessarily make you a brilliant you know foreign policy expert or you know mm. have any deep understanding of the the physical makeup of reality per se and um so that's sort of one of those areas where i'm interested in 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 developing better frameworks around spirituality because historically there's often been this conflation of all this material that oh once you're enlightened you're now you can talk about you know like what everything's made up of and stuff like that and uh i don't know maybe there is an element of that again maybe when you do insight and you and you start looking into certainly from a from a like what's the mind made up of but mm. but but that's probably a different thing than like what's this table made up of I don't know. Or maybe not. I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that. Being an epistemologist. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I, I sort of been thinking I, um, when you when you've this is no guarantee, but when you've dealt more with your own internal baggage, you I feel like you, this frees you up in a lot of ways to think more clearly, to um, give more charitable um, interpretations of what people are saying, so be more here and present to understand. So, you know, I don't know that full enlightenment is, is necessary, but certainly emotional um, peace will help with your sense-making, I, I think. That, Definitely. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I was also curious how you would, um, what you make of language around, say, like non-duality um, and, and like, is um i'm trying to think i'm even just finding language about how to refer to it in a way that doesn't seem silly or 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 um i don't know kind of overly simplistic or something but just to refer to your experience and your state of mind or whatever that however we want to refer to that um i mean is that a non-dual state or not necessarily because you're still interacting with an external objective world or it's uh, I don't know. How would you address the, the question of non-duality? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, pe people, again, give different uh, definitions of non-dual and different criteria. It, it, it feels very non-dual because there isn't a sense of boundaries, just the raw experience. And even, even still using understanding context and concepts and delineating sort of you know the distinction between okay the table and the floor and and such like that there's a, there's a, a deep insight into emptiness so that though even those concepts can arise and i can you know make sense of them and use them in the mind 
there's still like never really buying into them or believing them. You know, the concepts are all still sort of very airy and sort of fuzzy. And I, I know before having a deep enough insight into emptiness, when the concepts arise in the mind, you totally buy into them. You totally think there the universe is made of things that are tables and things that are not tables. And you feel like that's a very real distinction in the world. And that, that just, those distinctions loosen up and break them, you know, yeah. break apart. And so it's, yeah. Um, so it totally feels very non-dual, but you know, you could talk about states in which, okay, imagine that everything is just like one color and like one point and that's not my experience. So, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, uh, I'm also curious too, and I want, I want to make sure that we don't not talk about this. Um, so now you no longer do jhana meditation because you can't do jhana meditation. It sounds like so. Ex talk, explain a little bit about why and what that means. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to understand this as well, and I, I don't know if it's so much that I can't or that the inclination to do it is totally dropped off because my my current state of being is so uh, pleasant. I don't have the urge to state shift or something or to try to right. alter my alter the conditions of my experience to get into another thing like i'm just normally experiencing enough uh sukha and sort of pleasure emotions as it is and like in the fifth and sixth jhana this this notion of like boundless um space and boundless consciousness like I, before there was a move that needed to be done to get into such uh, an understanding or relationship with existence. And now boundless space, well, where's, I don't even perceive a boundary. It's, it, it, I, don't, I don't have this before there were, you know, these sort of pillars on the side of experience. that felt like there was holding up the bubble of the mind here. That's not felt or experienced anymore. And then the boundless consciousness is, um, well, um, everything is, uh, you know, perceived as being a, a, a aware of itself. So that, you know, I, I had an interesting uh, talk with Ingram, though, sort of talking about this, and he he was like, "Well, you, this yeah, Daniel but, Daniel Ingram, D D Daniel Ingram, yes, yes." Um, but you know, perhaps you know, you could you could still go into a state where there's a sense of boundless space, but you, you're you're removing the content. So it's like just boundless space and it's all uniform space, not with different, you know, populated with different objects or something like that. But um, yeah, can I, can I not do that? I just, maybe I'd have to, I, I just haven't even tried it. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, I just don't have the incentive because it's sure. just so nice to just kind of just be as I am. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm intrigued. One of the things, um, so, I, okay, so a little background with me too. So I, I discovered um, jhanas. <laughs> actually, so I was at Yale. I was at um, I was in Yale Divinity School. But actually, in, this wasn't at the Divinity School. This was at the university itself, um, where I took a Buddhism class. And um, my background before had been largely in literature and epic poetry and religion and stuff like that, philosophy. Um, so I knew, I knew Dante really well. I loved Dante. And what happened for me was I was in a, um, a Buddhism class and we did a whole section on Buddhist cosmology and he shows the map of Buddhist cosmology. And I'm like, 
holy shit, that's like the Dantean universe, you know, like, and so I was so fascinated by this, that I wrote a paper on um, comparing just, you know, kind of a standard kind of comparative analysis of like the Buddhist, Buddhistic cosmology, um, and sort of the medieval Christian cosmology. Um, But through that process, I discovered some really interesting overlaps between basically um, the the in in the in the christian cosmos there's the empyrean you know in the 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 divine realm of the celestial hierarchy and, oh, yeah. and, and all that pseudo dionysius stuff and i found some really interesting parallels in the buddhist cosmology with these different devas and the the unique part about the buddhist cosmology was that these you know higher entities or beings or spirits um basically the way you showed up there was by your jhana practice you uh, like these these entities exist because there's a there's this like a mapping of 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 not just kind of cosmological topography but it's like it's mapped onto states of consciousness which is something mm-hmm. that the christian cosmology doesn't really have as much but so i got really intrigued by um this notion that like these 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 uh, celestial spirits the devas are like inhabiting these different jhana states which is what introduced me to that and then i thought and then i started looking into that and then that of all of all the ways into this that's how i found lee bracington's work um so i bring all that up because uh where where this kind of leads um i'm really intrigued by the differences between uh kind of buddhist traditionally religious concepts and Christian ones. And one of the profound differences is that in Buddhism, that there's this, you know, emptiness is like a really important theme and topic and kind of a deep fundamental uh, ontological ground is rooted in emptiness. Whereas in Christianity, it's, it, there's almost more of the sense of fullness, the pleroma, the, the fullness of the deity. And, and that when Dante gets up to heaven and he has the beatific vision, it's not of an emptiness, it's of a kind of cosmic fullness. And um, so I, I mentioned all of this because Lee Bracington actually has a, an interesting point that I think uh, boundless consciousness, which is what, Jana 7? Boundless, boundless consciousness, six. Okay, six. Okay. Seven is nothingness. Gotcha. Exactly. So I was really interested yeah. because he makes the point that he says that in monothe, if you grow up in a monotheistic culture, like a Christian, you know, context, if you have that experience, you're probably apt to in- interpret that along the lines of you've just w- experienced the Godhead. You have mm. had an experience of basically uniting with, co- you know, cosmic consciousness. And that's a very sort of you know, that would fit really well in a Western contemplative, you know, uh, you know, framework. Um, But then there's jhana, the next jhana, which is, you know, that, that, that emptiness, um, where this question's leading, all that's kind of lead up to this question of um, coming from a a Western in a Christian context is in in my past, um, I'm very interested in theology and the notions of God, um, which don't appear as much in the Buddhistic context and more, more, center around that kind of emptiness. But um, I'm curious if, if, if you think about, um, well, maybe I'll just phrase it as a question. How does the word God mean anything significant? Is it, in, uh, what does it mean to you in your framework of, of thinking? Um, and how does that relate to um, maybe the jhana states of boundless consciousness and how might all that relate to where you find yourself now in terms of uh, the conscious state that is now your new default? Man, that's a question, hey, huh? <laughs> you just asked me the God question. Uh, <laughs> I well, can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Let me try. 
I'm I'm not opposed to the word God. I I really have sort of sympathy with that view, and and I don't mind people talking about God. Like how what is what is God? You know, um, we could just say, well, okay, it's the biggest entity in existence. You know, that's one one way to put it. Um, and then you know, what kind of attributes do you give to God? I know there's certain states and experiences to have where the sense that oh, I am God seems very uh, real to you, mm-hmm. sort of very weighty in in sort of soundness or um, validity. Maybe not soundness, but validity. Like, and that the way I understand that experience is like the the sense of when you really get in touch. I don't know this so relates to the jars and maybe I'm not the right person to ask because it's it depends maybe at what stage in your practice you're doing the jhana so if you know before I was doing jhana still very in touch with no self um but if you're still sort of really um have the strong sense of self and then maybe you go into the sixth jhana you've still got that really strong sense of identification or perhaps even I mean even in my my journey, there was a moment where I was identifying with awareness. I am awareness. Really mm-hmm. felt, I am awareness. Mm-hmm. And then awareness is sort of in and everything. So I am everything. And, and yeah, that, that, that God experience can be very much like, okay, the sense of I-ness that I have is somehow not personal, not individual. And the way the sense of I can be expressed in experience. There's only one way that raw, uh, I am like, I am I, the knower of experience. And so any, any being that has this sense of I or sense of, I am a subject knowing experience phenomenologically that raw I-ness has to show itself the same in all conscious subjects. And if God is a, uh, a conscious entity and he is self-aware, he has, he knows I am, I exist. And then you, you, you have this strong, Oh, I am God. The, the I, the I that is appearing in this local entity is felt and experienced the same as the I that ex- appears yeah. in God. Well, then the one. question for me though, is like, well, maybe there is an experience of that fundamental I-ness and then that might be experienced as a, wow, that was a profound mystical unity with the divine, with God. Um, highly contextualized if you are in a Western or Christian context or, mm. a, you know, Abrahamic religious context. But it, it almost seemed, and this is why I brought in all that stuff about the comparative analysis of the maps and stuff and even the jhana stuff, is that, um, well, maybe there's a point after that, right? Maybe maybe the I-ness itself dissolves and uh, and that and that then you're not really in sort of union with the monotheistic entity domain anymore um, because the very I-ness that might constitute, you know, the great I am, the great, the great deity that even dissolves. And now you're, and that's why I, I, that idea seemed to intuitively kind of make sense to me because it's sort of like, well, maybe that is the experience of sort of going from jhana six to jhana seven, you go from boundless consciousness to the emptiness, or maybe I, in trying to map this out, there's a better way of mapping that, that shift. Maybe there is still a sense of I-ness in the emptiness that then is finally what dissipates. I don't know, you know, but the, the, these yeah. are, yeah. 
Yeah, well, well, I think I think you know, even in Jhana seven, there's still a, sort of a subject-object divide, mm -hmm. and then that that disappears in Jhana eight, neither perception nor not non non-perception. But um, yeah, I've got some thoughts on like yeah, sort of going beyond the you know sort of God state is like one thing I think Buddhism does really interesting is is just mapping the the timeline of emergent properties in experience and seeing which one comes first and that it's possible to have experience without the I-ness. And so if you want to say that God has or God is that ultimate self-aware being, the big I, experientially that I is actually a latent property. Right. It comes later. Right. You know, first you need time and space to appear in you know consciousness or well, first you need consciousness and then time and mm -hmm. space perhaps mm -hmm. you know and then the eye appears right. and so if you you're, you if you have enough uh you know metacognition here you can track that progress of how in what order things appear right and then you can okay you know even dissolve the eyeness move back a step and say okay back to you know, well, right. And then this is where these notions about, I mean, you were talking about non-duality has different definitions according to different people. And the same with God too, right? So God could be to someone, the great I am, the great I-ness. Mm -hmm. But then for other people, God is just whatever is the most fundamental ground. And so someone like Eckhart, for example, uh, Meister Eckhart talks about God and then the Godhead, right? So he even makes a distinction between like the God that we think of as the God and then like the real, the real God above God, God beyond God, which would be the kind of, so you're, then you're just kind of, it's kind of a definitional slippage in some ways, but you're kind of just, you're kind of, you know, putting that, that, that uh, milestone, you're moving it a little bit further. Right. Moving um, the goalposts. Moving the goalposts. Right. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't really know where to go from there, but um, <laughs> fascinating stuff. I, 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 uh, is there, is you're stable to do cessation meditation practice. That's what, when, when Sean was doing the jhana meditation, um, you were doing cessations, mm -hmm. right? So what what is that describe that a little bit and and why that's still sort of something that you know something you can or or you know are 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 interested in still exploring well, well yeah you said you you i forget what you said you can or you do cessation practice like as if it's like an active thing and it doesn't feel like it just it just happens um sporadically and it's you know, it doesn't happen every time I sit to meditate, but then it happens, yeah, sort of very frequently as well. Can you describe Not that um, experience a little bit, like what that what that means? Yeah, so a cessation is when experience, uh, conscious experience, blanks out for a moment. So the cessation itself is actually not an experience, um, but the, the before and after is I'm sitting and just not doing anything like totally uh not engaging with the world sort of you know do nothing meditation um which is which is really you know how you get to the eighth jhana and um at some point yeah it's like all the sense doors defocus and then there's this sort of sense of like um like a or like a rush or something and then there's no experience and then immediately there's this feeling of 
refreshment and like you've 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 reset the machine and uh you're sort of back online and uh, huh. and so one of the things that i've been getting from a lot of the stuff i'm reading is that like wilbur for example will talk about there's this always present awareness the witness um how does that relate to cessation because i mean are there instances in which there is just pure not even awareness or a witnessing or any kind of anything going yeah, on yeah yeah what does wilbur mean exactly by the witness because i could understand that i think way. you'd probably be in a better position to tell me but <laughs> um i i think what he means is at least uh the idea that you know you can at the core at the fundamental that kind of ground of being there's this non-dual um reality which is neither you know it's just it's non-dual but it is there's still there's a there's a witnessing there's a there's an awareness there's a a a, a perceiver a seer a a something that is sort of a, a kind of fundamental consciousness that's having and then you know it's like well what's what kind of experience is non-subject object dualistic and and all that stuff but they're at the at the ground of it is the witness um and so it sounds like at a in a cessation experience maybe that isn't even there but i i don't know yeah yeah so i mean this is again i almost like the god question i would ask okay what attributes are you uh giving affording the witness you know uh, is, sure. is is there you know with the witness you really the sense of a subject knowing experience an experiencer in addition to experience that's always present i'd say no it's possible to uh drop that but um something about always being conscious i mean interesting things you know, we would want to point to sleep, right? When, you know, in deep sleep, there's seemingly nothing, no experience. Or anesthesia. I mean, when I got, when I broke my leg, they knocked me out and I woke up again and there was no consciousness to speak of. So I'm always intrigued by yeah. this notion of some deep consciousness, but yeah, very go on. And, and when you woke up, did you feel refreshed? Was it a really long <laughs> cessation? Well, they just, they just opened up my leg and, and, uh, you know, did surgery yeah. on it. So I wasn't feeling too great when I woke up. Um, more, more groggy and confused. Uh, oh, okay. Okay um but i mean yeah so it, it seems like cessations are hard to uh verify because it's like okay well there's no you're saying there's no experience but then if there's no experience there's no one to know of that thing so it's like how do we get some kind of more third person objective measures of this is where maybe right EEG well that's where the eeg stuff is and I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll already probably have shown it but like you just see all the brain waves just collapse um so yeah. and then and then for me if fundamentally, metaphysically, ontologically, whatever you want to say, I'm curious and like, there seems to be a claim in a lot of these different traditions that like, but there's still something there, right? Because I think that that that's sort of the idea is that like, that there is a background conscious thing. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I, I get what they're talking about. I totally get what they're talking about. Um, you know, I, I've had experiences as well where I, I was I, I i was aware in deep sleep and it's like kind of like there was no time or space no sense of personal history or self or these things and and yet there was still an isness mm -hmm. there um cessation does not feel like an isness it, there, there's, mm -hmm. there's there's a jump cut in experience you really feel like yeah um 
as as Ingram explains, I like this explanation. Like someone has like cut out some of the a couple frames from your uh, you know personal movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could. I mean, I I have so many more questions. I really want to keep talking. My my battery's about to die, which is sort of my my main um, you know hard stop at the moment. And, uh, <laughs> and or maybe it'd be really fitting if everything just cut out. Speaking right when we're talking about cessation, even <laughs> yes. you know, just a hard stop. There we go. Um, cessation, yes. But uh, anyway, um, the reality of the difference between phenomenological experience and these sort of intersubjective things that we can point to and use data and stuff about is that like then you only have someone who maybe has had that experience who can share it and so it's it's um when you read a lot about these ideas conceptually um but don't have access to someone who can speak to it phenomenologically there's there's a you know something's missing from your account so i appreciate you helping me fill in some of these things and um for me you know the development of a meditation meditative practice is to is to build out that experience for myself, which I think is sort of the the idea is that it's not just then secondhand, but you understand firsthand what these what these things mean. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, for Brendan, uh, thank you very much. And yeah, I, I just I mean on that point, I just want to say like I want to be uh, a source of no BS, sort of like relaying yo, what's possible, this is achievable, stuff like this, and uh, yeah. really trying to, yeah, help help the whole world understanding it. So. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully talk again later. So thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Take care.